Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Julia Stüttel, your host, and today we'll be talking to Christian Kirchmeier about his new book, Moral und Literatur, or in English, Moral and Literature, a Historical Typology. As a ty- Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Julia Stüttel, your host, and today we'll be talking to Christian Kirchmeier about his new book, Moral und Literatur, or in English, Moral and Literature, a Historical Typology. As the title indicates, it describes different types of moral systems by analyzing German literature from different centuries. Mr. Kirchmeier, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yes, a pleasure is mine. Um, Mr. Kirchmeier, I wonder if you could just begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Um, well, I'm currently here uh, in New Haven at Yale University with my uh, habilitation project, which is on a pretty much completely different issue. I try to work on uh, the history of Parabasis, uh, so on theater history, um, and I'm based usually in, in University of Munich, um, And there, these kind of sociological questions of literature uh, were the focus of my research so far. And this is also where this uh, dissertation thesis on morality, morality and literature comes from. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, well, to start with, I really like the main idea of your book to write a history of moral as a succession of different types of morals. Um, and I also very much appreciate how you use German literature from different times to achieves this research goal. Um, well, okay, to begin with, uh, could you just name and to briefly characterize all the different types of morals uh, you have found? Um, yes, well, first I have to say that the succession of different moral types uh, certainly is the key methodological issue of the book. So if I may, I would like to start with uh, just some remarks before I try to outline the moral types I have identified, because this kind of helps to understand the scope of the, bro- of the book, which is obviously pretty wide. Now, yeah, I see, that would be fine. <laughs> so the basic question is, what does it mean to write history as a succession of moral types? Um, and it's quite obvious that moral judgments are a vastly heterogeneous matter. Let's just take, for example, the question of free speech. You would probably find at all times uh, people who argue that free speech is uh, indisputable for a functional political political system, and you would find others who would argue that there need to be certain restrictions of speech if we really want to keep the political system functioning. So there is something you could call a, a historical chaos of moral judgments, which makes it extremely hard to see any historical developments of morality. The basic idea of the book is not to look at the quality of the moral arguments, as most ethics scholars would do, but rather to analyze the structure of moral distinctions that is at work. This is 
uh, the structure of the difference between good and bad or good and evil. And you could, you could even call this maybe the historical grammar of moral judgments. Now, the book considers literature as a medium that helps us observing this historical grammar. And I believe that this has massive practical and, um, and also political implications because uh, the way we form our moral practices strongly depends on what stories we listen to, what novels we read, what plays, what movies, what TV shows we watch, and so on. Um, also, an important thing is that I would not go so far and claim that certain types of moral differentiations are really specific or even exclusive to a certain time period. But I do think that moral types can be observed to be, well, yeah, typical for a certain historical situation, which means that there are certain times at which you would expect certain historical types more than others. But still, every moral type could be observed historically earlier or later. So um, having said this, um, now to the types themselves. In sociological theory, you would often hear that until the Middle Ages, society was pretty much founded on the idea of shared moral values and on the notion of a cosmic unity of the good, the true, and the beauty, while later on, during the process of modernization, morality continuously lost its function to maintain social order. What I now try to show is that even in a sociological and empirical understanding of morality, history is not as linear as it might seem, and morality does not simply lose its social function. Instead, there are at least six distinct moral types that I tried to outline. The first type is um, what I identified for the beginning of the early modern period and what I like to call the stable type of morality. This type is characterized by an imaginary social consensus on moral values, a consensus that is made possible by a strong belief in um, yeah, an asymmetry between good and bad uh, in such a way that the power of good will or should always triumph over the power of evil. And you see, this is something you still find in Hollywood uh, movies all over. Uh, however, as societies rapidly grew more complex during the 17th century due to, for example, political, legal and religious differentiation, it was hard to stick to the idea of a moral consensus. So instead, morality became a concept of social, social exclusion. Um, so you can imagine that you have to be some kind of hermit who gets lost on an island to lead a morally good life because the distinction between, between good and evil gets more and more distant to the center of society with all its political and religious issues during the 30 years war, for example. And this really is a loss of the social function of morality because, um, and yeah, because there's this moment of isolation and this is why I call uh, this type the isolated type of morality. Um, this is followed now by the third type, um, which starts that with a problem that the price for the isolation of morality was that it could not stabilize social order anymore as it did for centuries before. And the era of enlightenment tried to solve this problem, to address this problem with a concept of, um, yeah, a concept of recursion rather than a concept of isolation. Which means that uh, the Enlightenment tried to create morality out of itself. And this is what I call the recursive type of morality. The preliminary concept was to morally improve the existing society by morally improving every single member of society. And mor morality thus became a problem of didactics. 
However, to the fourth uh, type from the middle of the 18th centuries on, it became obvious that this didactical experiment of enlightenment was a blunt failure. The, pro the problem was that moral criticism could not prevail when it came from within a corrupt society, because, of course, the critique itself was corrupted. So if science is the reason why everything goes wrong with society, you cannot use science to improve society. And this is the problem that a new critical type of morality tried to solve. And in this critical type, aesthetics in general and literature in particular really come into play. Art now becomes um, something like a normative origin for moral differentiations, which is a really astonishing idea because you have to imagine that you are expected to read novels and uh, to go to the theater, not just for entertainment, but in order to be a good citizen. And up to the present day, um, we send for this very reason our kids into schools where they read dramas that somehow shall improve not just their lives, but the moral quality of the present society itself. And literature is expected to work with some hidden mechanism as a social corrective. In the 19th century then, especially in the context of Romanticism, aesthetics loses its tie to this hidden hegemonistic force of art. Art rather becomes a system with its own rules and it tends to even prefer evil characters because this just helps art to be more interesting. So what we find now is something I would like to call the diabolic type of morality, a type where evil is no longer something everybody is trying to avoid, but instead has gained an aesthetical value of its own. Um, and yeah, you could even say this is a very, this is something you, you, you see in personal experience that um, people who are evil may be the more interesting people than people who always uh, behave accordingly to moral values. But still, and this leads to my last point, um, because this leads to a paradox that is characteristic for morality, at least since the 20th century. And the paradox consists in that on the one hand, society seems to be too complex to be morally controlled, but on the other hand, good and evil remain necessary uh, categories in order to reduce the complexity of modern society. So we cannot just say um, we have to get rid of morality altogether. Yeah, um, amazing overview. Um, so you just mentioned that your first uh, type of moral is a stable type of moral. Um, and that the stable type of moral assumes that all members of society agree concerning the question of what is good and what is bad, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, could you uh, give a literary example for this pattern to make it a bit more clear? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's very important to understand that in the stable type of morality, um, this consensus is not a fact. It is just an assumption on a semantic level. Uh, and literature is one possibility to make this imaginary consensus observable. observable. Um, if you think, for example, of Easter dramas at the end of the Middle Ages, um, they have these simultaneous stages on the market square with the heaven on the one side, on the side of the church, and the hell of the, on the opposite side, which means that this spatial arrangement makes the moral standing of the figures in the play absolutely transparent. There was no doubt about moral ambivalences. One curious thing about the stable type of morality is this, that the evil figures also have to know themselves that they're evil. So you have these strange moments like with Shakespeare's Richard III, who knows and says that he's a villain. Um, or you could also think of Sebastian Brandt's Narrenschiff, um, 
because Brandt uses fools to point out immoral behavior. So whenever you see a fool, you know this is something evil which you should not do. While um, there's just maybe one exception in the third edition of his book where the author himself suddenly speaks of a fool. So he says, there's this fool Sebastian Brandt. And the question now arises, of course, how reliable are the moral warnings we hear, the warnings of foolishness, when they come from a fool? Oh, I see. Okay. And um, and the next chapter, which is to say the next type of moral, you first, you first remark that within the 16th and 17th century, crucial changes took place in Europe, as, for example, a change within economic orders and the rise of empirical science. Um, and then you turn to Walter Benjamin's famous work, The Origin of German Tragic Drama, which leads you to the question of whether within this type of moral, there's a clear-cut separation between a moral of politics and a moral of religion. Um, yeah, it sounds complicated. Um, could you explain how you got to this question and how you answered it? Um, yes, I got to this question because of Benjamin, who really is an important author to me. Uh, this is because he asked questions like, how does literature change over time? What do these changes tell us about society? Um, which I would say is to a certain degree a historical typological approach. Now, in his book on tragedy, Benjamin focuses on the development from pre-modern tragedy to Baroque tragic drama. And according to him, tragedy requires a continuous sphere of imminence and transcendence. So not a separation of the world and, and uh, another transcendent sphere. Uh, and this unity of immanence and transcendence is something you could still observe in the Easter dramas of the Middle Ages I just mentioned. Because uh, you sit there in the audience, you watch a play about Easter, you observe the act of salvation, and by watching it, you do something for your own salvation. So this is important for your, yeah, for, for your life and for your own afterlife. And this changes in the Baroque tragic drama just about a hundred years later. There you see that God does not interfere with the imminent events on stage. What you observe instead in these plays is the separation of imminence and transcendence, or the difference between secular and salvation history. The world now changes completely if you look at it from a political or from a religious perspective. And this is also something the plays themselves examine. If you think, for example, um, of Gryphius Leo Arminius, there you'll find uh, a lot of different perspectives, perspectives like the perspective uh, of the emperor, of his wife, of the traders, and so on. You'll find a dozen of different moral perspectives. And important is that in the end, there is no deus ex machina who would intervene and solve this chaos of contradicting moral values. So obviously, this is a type of morality that cannot be described as stable or as consensual. And I would say that, for example, Thomas Hobbes' political theory is precisely an attempt to solve the problem that this chaos of religious and political differences creates to the order um, of pluralistic societies. And I would also say that you can find something similar to Benjamin's origin of German tragic drama um, if you think about what changes from Brandt's Narrenschiff to Grimmelshausen's Simplicissimus. Because in Simplicissimus, you find the fool again, but he became a court jester. And as a court jester, he can speak moral truths in political contexts, but these truths don't have any political consequences. And this is the reason why um, he can say them in the first place and why he ends, at least for some time, as a hermit in permanent exclusion on an island. 
which is the only place in the world where you can still lead a good life outside of the social world. So uh, definitely a development has taken place. Um, so, and the next type of moral conscience, the beginning of the 18th century, um, an important person of the 18th century that is always mentioned within the education of German studies is, of course, Johann Christoph Gottsched. Um, could you just maybe focus on him while describing this type of moral? Mm -hmm. Um, maybe by following up on this this issue of the of the fool, because Gottschalk certainly knew about the problems and the risks of the fool if you use them as literary figures, uh, because the fool is morally ambiguous and therefore a risk to this project of a didactical literature, um, where you as Gottschalk wanted it should always depict the good as good and the bad as bad. Um, Gottschalk's basic idea was that if morality changes with different perspectives, as you found in the literature of the 17th century, you have to show the goodness of good and the evilness of evil. And this is what I call the recursive type of morality. A curious result of the recursive type of morality is the concept of poetic justice, which means that even though we know that in real life bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, literature should always reward the virtues and punish the villains. Uh, I have to admit that Gottschalk himself was a bit critical to this concept of poetic justice because it can be unlikely and thus contradict uh, with the idea and the concept of uh, vraisemblance. But still, other than that, he was rather very sympathetic to the concept in theory. He also observed the limitations of his uh, concept in his own plays like Der Sterbende Cato, because in this play, Cato turned out to be a much more ambivalent character than Gottsched had hoped, and some critiques of his play even considered his antagonist Caesar to be just as admirable as Cato himself. So in many ways, uh, the recursive type of morality can be understood as a failed experiment of the Enlightenment era. And the failure of this experiment, I believe, has much to do with a factor of time. Take, for example, utopian novels like Schnabel's Insel Felsenburg, uh, and the question, You read this novel over hundreds of pages, and in the end, you see there's some kind of ideal state of society. But what happens when the utopian ideal state of society is finally achieved? The text obviously has to create some kind of problem in order to keep the narration going, thus lead away from the ideal utopian state. So you cannot, yeah, you cannot stabilize the recursive type of morality. And, uh, Maybe his last example, which is the probably most important document for the failure of the recursive type of morality, is uh, Bernard de Mandeville's Fable of the Bees, a story in which Mandeville shows that an imaginary society of purely good people leads to a recession of the society as a whole. Um, and this is because, as uh, he argues, private vices, like, for example, that uh, some people like uh, to lead uh, a Uh, life and luxury um, can lead to public benefits. So you have to, to change the scope of private life and uh, of public life. So uh, Felsenburg is so long and has so many pages because this type of moral somehow fails. I mean, this sounds <laughs> somehow funny. <laughs> Yes, it's, I don't know if it's if it really if that is really the reason why why it is so long. It is more that it tries to 
to show how an ideal state of society can be achieved, but um, the genre of the novel and the um, the attempt to keep continuously writing it and to, to have continuously um, time passing in the story makes it um, observable that uh, the ideal state is never reached but can always be changed. There's always a risk in, uh, in a utop utopian um, society that yeah, something happens which, which contradicts with the utopian state. Okay, all right. So um, generally speaking, the 18th century was one full of events and changes of thinking patterns. And um, this is confirmed by your observation that there exists a second type of moral for the second half of the 18th century. Now, I would be curious how it differs from the type you just described. Uh, I believe that the change from the recursive to this now critical type can be dated quite precisely to the middle of the 18th century, namely to the year 1750, when Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote an article in which he criticized that decades of rationalization did not improve the morality of society. According to him, the effect was just the opposite. Art and science have led to a moral downfall, or responsible to the moral downfall in society. And that was the reason why he tried to reconstruct a hypothetical state, um, a state of nature, to gain a neutral standpoint that enables moral criticism. And this neutral standpoint is then transferred into the conscience, into the inside of every human being. This, of course, comes at the cost that all citizens are now expected to develop a double character. The shell, uh, which is something, of course, which uh, Foucault has pointed out, They shall at the same time be subject and object of government, or as Kant put it, they shall at the same time be judge and defendant. However, uh, if moral critique is a matter of the subject, then every citizen has to work and has to improve his subjectivity. This becomes, uh, yeah, you could say a kind of ethical imperative. And uh, if you think of Goethe's Faust, uh, it would be a good example for the human being in the critical type of morality, because Faust constitutes himself as a subject by continuously working on, on himself as a monumental ego, and no matter what the consequences are. But um, I think the most sophisticated concept of this critical type of mora morality can be found in Schiller's aesthetic theory. And Schiller gives a quite consistent answer to the problem that every moral critique of society is necessarily biased because it is influenced by the very society it tries to criticize. And he believes and he thinks that he has found with art um, the one sphere that is or can and should be the only sphere that is absolutely free from the rest of society so that Art is the only sphere that cannot be made or should not be made an instrument for something else. So according to Schiller, the only way to create political subjects in democratic society is by refining them as aesthetical subjects. I guess um, there was never a stronger concept of literature, um, a concept which is not just autonomous, as you can often read and hear, but rather a truly Uh, hegemonistic power. Okay, fine. So um, the next type of moral you describe concerns the value of the evil. 
And at first sight, this sounds strange to me because normally you don't consider the evil as an intrinsic value of moral, um, right? So the evil seems to be rather the opposite of moral. And I mean, of course, the aesthetics of evil exist, but um, is there really a moral of the evil? Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is uh, a huge is issue that uh, has been discussed in the 19th century. And it is such a huge issue because for a long time, the difference between good and evil was a difference between uh, uh, a positive and a negative value. And this would be true for all the moral types I've described so far. But in the 19th century, at least literature suddenly started to prefer the negative value and thus making it not just being negative anymore, simply because it created the more interesting stories. So what one can observe in some literary texts since the Romanticism is a change in the form of moral differentiation. If you take, for example, uh, the figure of Cadillac in Hoffmann's Fräulein von Scuderie, um, he's a figure who has to be evil in order to create his ingenious works of art. So to him, evil is something he tries to achieve instead of avoid. Um, or think of Baudelaire, who depicts evil uh, also in order to create interesting moments uh, and effects of pure presence. So at least in the sphere of art, I think that uh, evil becomes suddenly a positive value, which does not mean that, is, uh, that it is an uh, ethical equivalent to, um, to the good. So there you're certainly right. Yeah, very interesting. I see your point. Um, now, Mr. Kirchmeier, I'm afraid we've already taken a lot of your time, but um, maybe just one last question. Um, concerning the beginning of the 20th century, you have observed a type of moral that is dominated by internal contradictions. Um, that is to say, you look at Robert Mosier's description of a murder, And on the one hand, the murderer seems to be guilty, but on the other hand, his murder seems to be not his fault. Um, so just tell me more about that. Um, Musier uses this figure of the murderer Mosburger in, this, uh, in his novel Man Without Qualities. And he raises a question that is debated throughout the 19th century about legal accountability. And this is a very important question that ended in a paradox, because If someone commits a crime so violent that we must consider him insane, how can he be punished? So the consequence is paradoxical because just as we are desperate to find someone responsible for a really horrible crime, the concept of responsibility itself gets lost. And this is just the legal side of the problem because for Musil, of course, Mosburger's murder is also a metaphor for the crime of World War I and for the question about who can be made accountable for that. And throughout his novel, Musil expresses the modern experience of complexity where an action cannot be imputed to a single actor with evil intentions. So with the term of Bruno Latour, you could say that the whole novel is about actor networks. There's, for example, one chapter which uh, yeah, could be written by Bruno Latour, maybe himself, um, where Musil describes uh, or reflects on a train crash. So when two train crashes, uh, they're obviously you cannot make one of the train conductors uh, accountable. Musil writes that, uh, I think this is pretty much a quotation, um, uh, in the vast network of, uh, of the rails, of the, the switches, of the signals that there are, we lose the, as he calls it, the power of the conscience. But still, on the other hand, it is not an option to make simply nobody accountable. 
And this type is probably best described, therefore, as a paradoxical concept of morality. And it seems to me that this type is still very influential when we discuss moral problems today. And uh, to be honest, I do not see any solution for it. Because modern society and modern literature seem not to provide moral values anymore. They rather show the problem of the validity of these values. And I must say that I'm rather skeptical if these problems can be solved by a moral philosophy alone. It might rather be necessary to focus on a historical context, on the historical context from which our moral arguments emerge. And this is where I think literature is probably uh, the most important medium to make this emergence visible. Okay, Mr. Hirschmeier, that sounds like a great book of yours. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today and I really enjoyed it. So thank take care. Pleasure.